You're listening to audio from The House, located in Kelowna, B.C. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit us at thehouseonline.ca. Hey, good evening, everyone. All right, I'm, uh, I've got a, a pretty cool talk for you tonight. It's short and sweet. Um, I'm going to get right into it. By the way, for those who are live streaming with us, it's like 30 degrees here in Kelowna, and it's hot, and this building is terribly air-conditioned. And so if we start glowing, it's because it's really hot in here. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. I want to read you three verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. This is a very interesting community of people. They've been going through some real challenges, but very generous, generous group of people. And Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each to the interests of others. All right? The Apostle Paul here is talking about a principle fundamental to our wiring. He's saying quite simply here, the joy is not found in vain conceit and selfish ambition. You can go down that path a thousand times and you will come up empty. He said, joy is found in caring for others first. And he called that humility. By looking after others, First, he called it humility. And this is a very difficult thing for a culture like the one that we live in that tells you that you deserve a brand new patio suite if you really want one. You deserve it. You deserve anything you really, really want because this is your time. It's really about you it's about your need. It's about your want. It's about your expectation. It's all about you are the center of the universe and you should have whatever you want. That's the every advertisement comes to us and places a smack dab in the center of the universe and says it all revolves around you. And the Apostle Paul is telling us exactly the opposite. He said it's not a about you. I was thinking about vanity, the whole conversation around vanity. And I was thinking about while I was standing in front of a piece of furniture and behind it was a mirror. It was the bathroom vanity. And I thought, wow, I never really put these two together. This is quite vain thinking about vanity, standing in front of a vanity. Um, but vanity is um, the when I began to think about the inventions that have created a lot of personal, emotional, and psychological stress in our lives. This is just me. This is just me thinking out loud. I think two 
inventions that would be at the top of the list, one would be the watch or the clock. Because there once was a time agrarian cultures lived in big swaths of time, from sun up to sundown. And you can get a lot in, and we have been reduced to seconds. We live our lives in minutes and in seconds, and that is stressful. But you want to know what I think is the second on my list of the most psychologically, emotionally stressing inventions? The human, I mean, <laughs> the human, the mirror. The invention of the mirror. Think about it. How much time have you logged today in front of the thing? Think about it. Did any of you just get up from your nap and come to church? I think not. You primped. You touched it up. You, stay, you squeeze some things. And you know what? You're in front of the mirror. And then you get in your car and you drive here. But you can't just walk straight in. You got to run to the bathroom, to the mirror, to make sure everything's still as it should be. And then you come in here. Is that right? The mirror. Oh, God help you when you get old. Because the morning mirror is a very painful experience. <laughs> there are times I walk in and, whoa, who beat my face up last night? Where did all this puffiness come from? Wow. So that was so painful for so long, I simply put a dimmer switch in the bathroom and we just turn it up as much as we can take it um, first thing in the morning, right? The mirror. It's an incredible thing. And what, you are, what are you looking at when you're looking at the mirror? What do you focus on? You're, you're not focusing on what is working for you. You're focusing on the one thing that isn't working for you. You know what I think is crazy? Some of us in this room, you should just get a distracted driving ticket as soon as you start the car. Because they put one of these mirrors right on the windshield facing you. Some of you can't even get out of the driver without checking yourself out. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> oh, you devil. <laughs> you know, look. Oh, stop it. <laughs> are your eyes really that blue? Yes, they are. Oh, golly, you're amazing. Did you whiten your teeth? No, you didn't. It looks like you did. And anyway, and you have this crazy... How many of you use the mirror to put your makeup on? It's to see the cars behind you. But the mirror becomes this obsessive thing for us in our culture. I was thinking about, I went to the mall for, for uh, last week on Friday. And I was looking at all the glass and all the mirrors and thought to myself, this would be a hellish place to work. Because you walk through the mall and now you have about a hundred times in the hour, a hundred opportunities to judge yourself. A hundred times to look and go, oh, it's not perfect. Oh, these pants make my legs look long. These pants make my legs look short. And to judge yourself. You see, when you're focused, when you're overly focused on yourself, you become obsessed with your own flaws. And when you become obsessed with your own flaws, you do one of two things. You compensate or you isolate. You compensate for those flaws 
and then you overcompensate or you isolate and you hide them from everybody. But either way, when you are over-focused on yourself, you cannot see another human being. And the Apostle Paul told us that we would find joy in this one thing, finding another human being, putting them first and serving them above ourselves. Let me talk to you about selfies. I've been thinking about selfies too. Has there ever been a time in the history of mankind where a generation, a group of people are more obsessed with, the, with, with, with taking multiple pictures of themselves every day and then sending them to people that don't care, <laughs> sending them to people that don't even look at them, and yet we do it again and again and again and again. What is it about that research? It's interesting. I, I did some reading on this to, to understand the psychology of selfies. And it's interesting because you think that when you're posting your picture, your selfie, you're quite convinced that this is your authentic self. But when you get everybody else's selfies, all you can see is the staging and the inauthenticity of it. And research shows that, that there is this massive gulf between how you see your own selfie and how you see everybody else's. And that's why after po posting this perfectly staged selfie, they said that most people are a little bit anxious and get a little bit depressed. Because before you took this selfie, you were the only one judging yourself. But the second you upload this, you pass over that immense power to your online world, and now everybody and anybody can have an opinion about you. And our egos are so frail, and our egos, our egos are so fragile that once you've posted a selfie, you, you, you know, the world stops, and, and you're suspended, breathless, waiting for someone to like it. And finally, like somebody does, and they like it, and you go, oh, thank God, I was going to die there. I was going to die. You, you, you live for their approval. You put it out there, and now you can't even function without getting the approval of others. So the human, the human ego has this insatiable appetite for attention, and it's not necessarily good. Think about your body. Think about the parts of your body, like your, your, all your bones and your muscles and your body parts. And, and the only parts of your body that draw attention to themselves are the ones that are broken or the ones that are hurting or the ones that are wounded. Am I right? Like how many of you walked in here today thinking to yourself, you know, my, my earlobes are awesome tonight. They are just awesome. They're hanging so straight. Oh, they're really parallel tonight. I love that. You know what? They, they're just, oh, they're perfect. You know what? I'm so glad I got earlobes. Most of you never even thought, haven't thought about your earlobes until you put an earring on or something. How about your Achilles heel? How many of you came in here going, woo? <laughs> Look at the spring in these babies. These are fantastic. I love these. You didn't even think about your Achilles heel unless you've torn it or snapped it or it's hurt. And the same thing when you consider that, consider your ego. There is just something terribly wrong with it because it is always drawing attention to itself. 
It is always drawing attention to what the unfairness of life or what you missed out on or why you should be praised or why you should be noticed. There's just something wrong with our human egos. And that is the reason you cannot be fully selfish and happy at the same time. It's impossible. God wired us different. You cannot be fully selfish and happy at the same time. You'll never be the best version of you. You'll never step into the fullness that God created you to walk in until you realize you are not the center of the universe. And it's not all about you. Maybe that's why Jesus said this. If your first concern is to look after yourself, he said, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look at me, Jesus said, you'll find both yourself and you'll find me. If your first concern is to look for yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you'll take your eyes off of you and you look to me, he said, not only will I introduce you to you, but I will introduce you to my love. I will introduce you to my way of doing things, my way of being. And so I submit to you that the cure for such a distorted, distended ego really is to look to Jesus and allow Jesus to put his love inside of us for others. Because God knows it's hard to be selfless. God knows that our egos are frail. He knows how, 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 how inward we can be in the way we live our lives. And so the Bible says this, that, um, that he took his Holy Spirit. He gave us his Holy Spirit. And when he gives us his Holy Spirit, he pours his love, a God love, into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So that we can find joy in loving others. We can find joy in humbly serving others. And so Paul said, in hum he said, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Let me tell you this. I don't care how cool you are. I don't care how tough your office is. I don't care how tough your classroom is. I don't care how tough your cabin is. I don't care how, how difficult it all is. I will tell you this, that when humility walks in the room, the spirit of God has just entered the building. When humility walks into a room, the spirit of God has just entered into the building. He walks into every room with humility. It's how... When he, he, we walk and we get clothed in humility, it's how we usher heaven to earth. Only when you're walking in an attitude of humility can you hear, can you discern, can you even see the other person and feel the love of God for that person. It's how we bring God pleasure. As a therapist, I work with people who don't get along. I work with people who struggle in getting along. And I have worked with people, with husbands and wives, whose marriage has been hostile for years. It's so toxic and hostile, they can't say a good thing to each other. And I've watched some of these relationships, which in the natural have absolutely no hope for, for healing. 
and watch the whole thing shift. I watch the whole room change when one of them goes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Everything, the dynamic in the whole room shifts. I've watched marriages that should never survive come back together and thrive when one person humbled themselves and said, you know, I'm going to own my stuff. I am so sorry. And when the other person can find that same grace, then all of a sudden there's something to talk about. There's an opportunity to move together. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, don't imagine that if you meet a truly humble person, you would ever come away thinking he is humble. All you would remember about a totally humble person is how they were totally interested in you. I love that. Looking out for the interests of other postures your heart to care for them. And when your life and your heart are postured to care for somebody else, you actually are postured to become an answer to their prayer. An answer to their prayer. Mother Teresa said this, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. That is so true. Small things with great love. But when you do small things with great love, there is great presence and great power attached to it. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm, uh, I'm sitting at this party and this gal starts talking to me. She's like 40 years old. And out of nowhere, she starts telling me this amazing story. She said that uh, she uh, was born in Poland. And in Poland, her and her mom and her dad were very poor. And they, they, in the evenings, they would, they would basically walk through town into the town square and visit with people, window shop, because they had no money to do anything else. She talked about how they, they made the usual rounds and there was one store and the store had a doll in the window. It was a brunette doll. And she said, I, I, I love that doll. And I would go into the store and I would take the doll and I would hold the doll and I would sing to the doll and I gave the doll a name. And when I was finished, I would put the doll back in the window and bid it good night. And the next time we were in town, I ran to that store. And she said, I was five years old and I did this over and over. She said, I wanted my mom and dad to buy me the doll, but the doll cost $200, so that was kind of not possible. It was fall, winter was coming. Her father was uh, an engineer on a big cargo ship and he needed a winter jacket. He didn't have a winter jacket and the winter jacket that would have done the job for him was $300 and they didn't have $300, so they're saving to try and get this winter jacket before winter comes. She said that one day they went into town like they'd always did and she went into the store and she was playing with her doll, which was really not her doll, which was the store doll. And then the store clerk came and took the doll away from her for the first time. And he handed the doll to a little girl whose parents were by the till, whose parents looked like they could afford to buy the doll. 
And this lady's telling me, but she's getting into this part of the story and tears are streaming and I, I'm just listening. She said, I couldn't bear the thought of somebody taking the doll that I was so fond of. And so she said, I quietly left the store and she said, and I went over to the sidewalk. I buried my face in my hands and I sobbed. I didn't want my parents to see because I felt kind of embarrassed. After all, it's not my doll. But parents have a way of seeing pain a mile away. And so she said it wasn't long before her father had come out on the street, sat down on the sidewalk, put his arm around his little girl and just comforted her. And when she stopped crying with his other hand, he handed her the doll that he had just purchased for her. And by this time she's telling me the story, she cannot stop crying. She's 40 years old today. Today she's absolutely moved at the level of, her heart is absolutely moved by that one act of love. It's not a big deal. It's just an act of love. And that is the power that comes along with every small act that is done in love. Her dad shows her happiness over his own comfort. In humility, he valued her above himself. He put her interest above his. She said, I just realized something. Uh, she said, I just realized something that we actually didn't even need a coat for that winter in Poland because the immigration papers that we've been waiting for years came through only a little while later and we got to move. We got to leave Poland and come to Canada, which I said, you probably still needed a winter coat. <laughs> Jesus said this, this is so cool. He said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He did not say, people will know that you are mine by the way you love me. He said, they will know you love me by the way you love them. Loving them is more difficult because they're more annoying than God. And Jesus is talking about loving each other as an act of worship. Man, the older I get, the more I realize church is not the only place you worship, man. It might be the only place we can get a really cool band to play really loud music and we can lift our hands and we can sing. That, that might happen here. But do you realize the second you get up tomorrow, the second you encounter another human being, you can begin to worship? You can begin to worship and you worship all week long and you come through the day and you're tired, but you're full. I'm gonna invite the, the band to come on up. Tell you one more story and then I'm done. I love this story. I just came across it this week for the first time. Um, in the late 1800s, there was a college student. And he was selling goods door to door to pay his way through college. He was back down to his last dime yet again. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten all day. He was just selling stuff so that he could get his way through college, but he couldn't go on much further. And he decided that he was going to humble himself and ask somebody at the next house if they could give him some food. And he gets to the, to the next house and he knocks on the door 
And the second this beautiful young lady comes to the door, he loses all nerve to ask for something to eat. And instead of asking for food, he said, uh, could I have a glass of water, please? And the young lady thought that he looked hungry, so she brought him this large glass of ice-cold milk. And she sat with him as he slowly drank the milk. And then he said, how much do I owe you for the milk? And she said, oh, no, absolutely nothing. My mother taught us to never accept payment for a kindness. And the young man said, then I thank you from my heart. I thank you. And as Howard Kelly left the house, he felt physically stronger. But maybe more important, his, his faith in mankind had strengthened because he'd become so discouraged, so discouraged with the hard path that he was on that he was ready to quit college, ready to quit school. And so he kept on going. Um, years later, so years went by, and that young lady had gotten very sick. And she had contracted a disease that the local doctors didn't know how to treat. And then they said to her, listen, you're gonna have to go to the city. You're gonna have to go to John Hopkins University. There's a team there. They're the only ones that could really possibly help you. And so she went to the city. And Dr. Howard Kelly at this time was a distinguished physician at John Hopkins. And he was called in for the consultation. And he looked at the, the paperwork and he recognized the name of the town. And so he left the room and he went down the hall and into the room and he looked at the young lady and he recognized her immediately. He went back to the consultation room and he made a commitment that he was gonna do everything he could to save her life. And he gave her situation high priority in his docket of things, to, cases to look at. And the battle was hard fought, but the battle was won. And she was restored, healthy and whole. As she was about to be released from the hospital, Dr. Kelly requested to take a look at the bill for final approval. He saw the bill and then he scribbled something at the bottom and then he said, you can take a turn now. The young lady was terrified to look at this bill because she knew that she would probably spend the rest of her life paying this debt off. And when she saw the sum on the bill, it was overwhelming to her. And then her eye caught something that was scribbled in pen at the bottom of the bill. And it said, your bill is paid in full with a glass of milk. You see, this is exactly the economy of heaven and how it works. Exactly like this. Jesus said, give to others and God will give to you. Indeed, you will receive full measure, a generous helping poured into your hands, all that you can, all that you can hold. The measure you use for others is the one that God will use for you. This is the most gracious invitation, don't you see? Jesus is saying to us, be generous with your life because you'll find joy in it. Be generous with your time because you'll find joy in it. Be generous with your resources, with your talent. Be generous, give it away. And in so doing, 
you position yourself for God to be generous to you. And so not only do you walk in the joy of serving and giving and loving, but you become one to whom God says, I can trust you. So let me just give you some more. I can trust you that you'll give it away. I can trust you. And there is joy in living that way. Amen. That's a pretty good word, I think. Why don't we stand together? I'll pray for you. I'll kick you out of here. Man, you guys did pretty good. They're in the spit zone right here. And I only, I only landed two or three on Braden there. Um, so other than that, we did good. Well, Father, we love you. Your word is beautiful. The exhortation of it is beautiful. Everything in our greedy natural self wants to clutch and hold. And you're teaching us the joys find in releasing and giving and blessing. And we thank you for that. So, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the people in our world tomorrow. Help us to see somebody for other than ourselves. Help us to see a need. Help us to see an opportunity to encourage. Give us eyes to see. Jesus, Some of you, I'm not sure if you haven't already, but I think somebody in here needs to phone their mama. Somebody needs to reach out to her and maybe your strained relationship with her makes you not want to call her. But I'll tell you what, you need to humble yourself. And humility, with humility, that phone call, the Spirit of God can walk through the telephone line and touch a relationship that is not so good right now. Somebody needs to call her mother tonight. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from The House. For more information or resources, visit us at thehouseonline.ca.